Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning. We're moving through the book of 1 Corinthians and uh, chapter 13. When you get there, just hold your spot. We're not going to start there, but we're going to get there. And uh, I promise here soon enough, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. How many of you have ever engaged in something and you put forth a lot of effort and maybe you put forth a lot of expense and uh, you made all these big plans and then when it was all said and done, you had nothing to show for it, right? We, we've all been there. We've all done that. Uh, imagine, you know, you, you work hard, you build a big house, you know, you saved up your money, you pour all your life savings into it. Uh, you, uh, you've worked extra jobs to be able to have enough money. You build this new house. Imagine you build it and you never move into it. Or you save all your money, you buy yourself a brand new car, it's your dream car, whatever that might look like, and uh, you get this car and you never drive it. Or you come to a church like this and you do all this effort, you get ready for vacation Bible school and you have all this stuff ready for the kids, and imagine we don't have vacation Bible school. You know, how would you feel after that? You'd feel frustrated, right? You'd be upset. I, um, I started... Um, building or, or making or planting, whatever the right word is, gardens a few years ago. Now, I'm not, I'm not a farmer, right? I love to eat, and I love what farmers do, but I'm no farmer. And so a few years ago when the kids were, when Hannah was little, uh, she's nine now, when she was really little, I decided I'm going to plant a garden. And, uh, and so I'm going to get started with this. I'm going to plant it. So where we were living, I planted a little section outside the backyard, had like two or three rows or so, and I loved it. I hated most of everything that I planted. I don't, like, I grew all these tomatoes. I don't like tomatoes a whole lot, but I like growing them. And uh, most of the stuff I, I, I grew, I didn't even like to eat, but it was just fun watching them grow and watering them and fertilizing them and seeing them grow. And you've got these little tiny plants, you got big old plants, then you got stuff that you can give to people to eat. And it was just a lot of fun. So uh, we moved like about uh, six months or so ago, moved to a new place. And so in our yard, I was like scoping out because I'm thinking, all right, I want to do a garden here. This is going to be really good. And so I found me a place in the very ba- in the back of the yard and uh, I looked and there's plenty of sun, you know, and so I borrowed a uh, tiller, you know, I got a tiller from Eddie, and I got out there, you know, one afternoon, and, and it was the biggest garden I've ever had, and I tilled up all this, all this ground, and, and uh, it was tiring, it was hot, and all these roots, and just having cut roots out, and all this stuff, got it all ready, and uh, took the tiller back to Eddie, and uh, uh, about a week later, spring came, and uh, the, the, the leaves came out, and uh, the sun started changing its angle. And, uh, and now what was a really sunny garden when there were no leaves on the trees is now covered in shade, right? And you can't plant a garden in the shade. And so that whole section of ground has nothing planted in it. And it is just a reminder of the frustration of when you do something and there's nothing to show for it, right? And we've all been there. Now imagine for yourself that you expend great, some, great amounts of energy. Imagine that you expend huge amount of expense. Imagine that you do good things, you do good deeds, and you try your best in your marriage, in your, in your families, in your friendships, in your relationships. Imagine that you do all of that, and you feel on the inside like you've got it all right. But just imagine that when the dust settles, you were to find out that all of it was for nothing. And the reason that all of it was for nothing was because of a missing ingredient that you really had not even thought much about. That's what we're going to look at in chapter 13 today in the book of 1 Corinthians. And the missing ingredient that we often find in the midst of all of our good deeds and all the nice things we say and all we do to try to help others and the way we navigate marriage and family and relationships and friendships, that missing ingredient from God's perspective that is often not there is that quality of love. 
not the quality of love that, that we think it is, but from God's perspective. And so in 1 Corinthians 13 today, we're going to cover most of that chapter. There's a little bit of it. We're going to kick over to next Sunday. But most of this chapter we're going to cover today. And we're going to be looking at what Paul has to say, inspired by God, what Paul has to say about this topic of love. Now, this chapter, I want to say, is a chapter that you're probably familiar with. You may say, Brooks, you don't, you don't know me. You know, I just started going to church. Uh, I'm not familiar with a whole lot that's in the Bible. That's okay. We've got a lot of folks that are like that. We've all been there one time or another. You're probably still going to be familiar with this because if you've ever gone to a wedding, if any of your friends or family have ever been married and it's been in a, in a church and there was a pastor that did the, 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 the service, chances are in that wedding you heard at least a part of this particular chapter, chapter 13 in the book of 1 Corinthians. And there's going to be parts of it that as I read through it in a second, it's going to sound really familiar to you. And there are going to be parts of it you're going to say, yep, I remember hearing that because I've been to a wedding. Well, here's what we have to understand. That this chapter, when Paul wrote it 2,000 years ago, it was not written to marriages. I mean, this is not a marriage chapter. This is a chapter that has huge implications in marriage, right? You can take this chapter and apply it to any marriage in this building. But it also has application across the board in any type of a relationship that we may find ourselves in. Because God didn't write this chapter as a marriage manual. It's not just written to married people. This is written to people. And so when we read chapter 13, we find that it's going to apply to your marriages, to your friendships, in your family life, even as you, as you uh, uh, navigate the, the, the storms that sometimes come with those that may be your enemies. Because God tells us to love even our enemies, it's going to have application there as well. And so 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 13, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be looking specifically at uh, what God has to say from his perspective regarding the topic of, uh, of love. We're not going to exhaust every angle of it, obviously, but we're going to be looking at what it has to say here in this chapter regarding love. So let's just blow that out a little bit, because whenever we look in the New Testament specifically, what we find is that God has a lot of other things to say about love. Here's what you find, that God looks at love to a large degree as glue in human relationships. It's somewhat of a glue. In fact, look at what it says on the overhead. Don't turn there, but on the overhead. Look at what it says in the book of Colossians chapter 3. Paul writes to the Christians in Colossae, and he says here, beyond all these things, put on love, he says. And we'll describe what that is in a moment. He says, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. In other words, love, uh, God says, love is like a glue. And when you look at your relationships, whether marriage, whether family, whether with your kids, whether with your friends, regardless, when you look at your human relationships, it's that quality of love from God's perspective that serves as glue. And so whenever you look at strained relationships, whenever you look at relationships that are not surviving, uh, whenever you look at relationships that are crumbling and falling apart, what you often find is that they have no bond, they have no glue, there is no unity that's there. Unified relationships rarely fail. <laughs> uh, disunity almost always results in, in, in fractured relationships and ultimately can bring the end to a relationship. What we find here is that love, from God's perspective, is, is glue. It is the perfect bond of unity. So love is, is somewhat of a glue, but it's, it's also fuel for relationships. Paul writes elsewhere to Timothy, uh, one of his young sons in the faith. Look at what he says here, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1. Let's go ahead and turn there. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but God's given us a spirit of power. He's given us a spirit of love. He's given us a spirit of discipline. And so in a sense, when you look at the application of love in relationships, it's also fuel. I mean, it's what keeps relationships going. It is the fuel. It's what feeds it. Like gas to a fire, uh, love is what fuels relationships. If there's no love in a relationship, you have no relationship. 
<laughs> I mean, it's the fuel that drives it. It's what makes it what it is. And so love is a glue. Love is a fuel, but love is also, it's like a bullseye. Look at what Paul says here, 1 Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 1. He says the goal or the aim or the bullseye, and kind of put it in a different, different translation, the goal of our instruction is love. It's love from a pure heart. It's a good conscience, sincere faith. And so, so the astounding comment is this, that, that God can say, I gave you this whole big book that you hold in your lap, Old Testament and New Testament. I gave you this whole entire Bible, this whole scripture. I gave you all this instruction with the goal, with the aim, with the bullseye being love, that you're going to learn how to love, that you'll know what love looks like, what it smells like, how it, how it, how it uh, feels in your own life, how you render it to another person. God says, I've given you all of this book so that your goal, your aim, the bullseye will be that you learn how ultimately to love. And so when we get to this chapter, we find that Paul is writing to a group of Christians. We, ha- we have to know this. He's writing to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth who really had missed it, missed it badly in this. They did not understand what love was. They were looking out for themselves. They were, uh, chapter 6 says, that they were taking all, each other off into court. You know, when they didn't get their way, they would just sue each other. <laughs> These were people in the same church, for crying out loud. Right? If they didn't, didn't like what another was doing, just, just take them to court. And just sue them. Take, get, take them for all they had. It, it, there was immorality rampant in that church. They were living for themselves. You get to chapter 11, you look at the Lord's Supper, and what you find there is that they were just completely distorting what the Lord's Supper was all about. They were choosing to, uh, to see the Lord's Supper as an opportunity just to feed their own desires, their own appetites. They weren't looking out for each other. And so Paul has to deal with this kind of stuff here. And, and I know for you, you think, boy, I'm sure glad life isn't like it was back then. <laughs> you know, today we all know how to love perfectly, right? And what Paul's saying here is, is, is in Corinth, they had a lot to learn. And I think the summary, the takeaway for us that we can take away from all this, and I hope you'll jot this down, is that it's it, the same way it was for the Corinthian believers, it's the same for us, that love is the glue, love is the fuel, love is the bullseye of every single relationship that you have. Every single relationship that you have. It's the glue that holds it together. It's the fuel that drives it, that makes it what it is, that sustains it. And love, ultimately, love from God's perspective, is going to be the bullseye. It's the aim. So that when you step back from your relationships, if you say, let's just use marriage as an example. If you step back in 20, 30, 40 years and say, boy, we sure had a good marriage, didn't we? We got a lot of good stuff, and we we bought bigger houses, and we we, uh, got all all these things we accomplished. Boy, sure, a success, wasn't it? That's not a success. Those are blessings. That doesn't mean it was a success because the aim and the goal, the bullseye of everything God teaches us is not more stuff or bigger stuff or better stuff. It's love. That's what God aims for in us because that's a reflection of who he is. And so you can go to the Philippines today or you can go to any third world country virtually on this globe and you can find people committed to Christ, committed to each other who have nothing but dirt to their name. And they have, in the midst of nothing, with no accomplishments, no plaques hanging on the wall, no degrees that they can say they've earned, they have nothing to their name except relationships that they have, have um, been committed to, that they've been, been faithful to, and that they ultimately have seen God bless. And they're the richest people on the face of this earth. Because it's the purpose for which they were created, to understand and to experience love, and in so doing, to see that, that love reflect the love of God for each and every single one of us. 
And so the takeaway for us, and you're going to see this as we move through chapter 13, is that love is the glue, it's the fuel, it's the bullseye of every single relationship, whether your marriage relationship, whether your family relationships, whether your friendships, or regardless, it is those things and much more. But that's what we're going to see here in chapter 13. So let me just say this before we begin to jump in and move through uh, verse by verse. In the Greek language, a lot of you have heard this before, there are, there are four primary Greek words that are used to describe love. And that's helpful for us to know this because we use love for everything. I mean, you love the Braves, you love your puppy, you love ice cream, you love free donut day a couple days ago at Krispy Kreme. I mean, we love all these things, right? Uh, and so we just use that terminology. We love, we love it all. Uh, but in the Greek language, that language is different. You know, in 2,000 years ago when they're writing the New Testament, you know, they're pulling out the New Testament. The, you know, their writings out of the New Testament vocabulary. So when they're trying to qualify what love is, there were four primary Greek words they would use. Now, one was the Greek word eros, which is more of somewhat of, a, of a, uh, uh, an erotic love, a sensual love. It's a love that feeds an appetite. It, really, in reality, it's a neutral term, but it was often applied to more of like a sensual uh, aspect of life. And so you'll have that Greek word eros. You'll have another Greek word, uh, uh, philea, which is a brotherly love. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's a Greek word. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a friendship type of a love. There was a third Greek word, storge, which was a love to describe family. It was a family love. And then there was a fourth Greek word, the word agape. And you've all heard that word, the word agape. Here's what you may not know, that when you think of agape love, that word did not exist much at all in the Greek language. Only maybe seven instances outside of Scripture was there any use of that Greek word agape when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, when the New Testament was written, for that matter. I mean, it was not a popular New Testament word, agape. It was not a popular Greek word. Only seven times possibly was it ever used. So when Paul is writing his, his books of the New Testament, and he's describing the love of God, and he's describing love that needs to be demonstrated in our lives, it's basically a brand new term. It's a whole new context, brand new concept. In other words, agape love is a love that only God can give. It is a love that is unconditional. It is a love with no strings attached. It is a love that initiates, doesn't wait. It is a love that gives regardless of whether it gets anything in return. That's the kind of love that Paul's talking about here. And so when he begins to describe this agape type of a love, he's describing love that comes at great cost, that initiates, that has no strings attached, that is unconditional and reflects Christ. Whether it's in marriage, friendship, whatever relationship, that's the kind of love God calls us to be able to... Uh, to be able to exhibit in the lives of others. And so knowing all that, let's go ahead and jump in. Let's begin moving through chapter 13, verse 1, as we see how love is the glue, how love is the fuel, how love is the bullseye of every single relationship. Chapter 13, verse 1. Paul, let me say, some of you have read these verses so often, you are inoculated against them. Does that make sense? The inoculation gives you a little dose so that you won't catch the real thing. Some of you have read these verses so much, you are inoculated against what it has to say. You miss the shock value of what Paul says here. Listen to what he says just in the first three verses, beginning in chapter 1. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, in other words, if I'm able to speak with such eloquence as no other on this earth, if I can speak in such a way as you would say, I have heard from the voice of angels, whatever that would sound like. Paul says, if I can do all of that, but if I do not have love, I have become 
a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I can speak better than anyone you have ever heard, you take the best speaker you've ever heard, the best orator. If, if Paul says, if I can speak better than them, but if I don't have love in my heart, then I'm nothing more, more than, a, than just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Here's the thing about a cymbal. Now, I'm no musician, obviously, as you know. That's why I don't play up in the, in the band. But here's one thing I've learned about a cymbal. They don't really carry a whole lot of melody. They don't really carry a whole lot of tone. It, it, now there, there's timing and those kind of things, but correct me if I'm wrong, Nathan, as though you will in front of everybody, I guess. Uh, cymbals are just like, Psh. Now, I know I'm not slighting you if that's what you played in the band. I'm sure you did it better than anybody, but it's, Psh. Now, I've been to football games. I've been to a lot of football games. I've been to a lot of football games. The best place to go to a, bull, to a, I mean, to a ball game, that's where Georgia plays. But uh, I've been to a lot of those games. And when the halftime you know, comes out, you, know, you don't want to go get a Coke necessarily because you know, when the, you got those college bands playing, those guys on the cymbals, man, they'll get you flat fired up, and it's good. But they don't have any kind of melody. It's just psh, psh. All right, You hear that enough in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're going to be telling the cymbal man to hit the road, Right? Because you're not going to want to hear that after a while. You can listen to, 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 to sweet sounds and good voices, but the cymbal guy, there's a point where he's got to go. Now, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had someone speak into your life, and man, they, they nailed it. They told you what you needed to hear, <laughs> and they were true, and they were accurate. Everything was, was right, but you knew they didn't say it because they loved you. They said it because they wanted to make you look bad or because they wanted to make themselves look better. You ever had that happen? Now, was that something you enjoyed hearing, or was that like that clanging cymbal? It was an irritant, wasn't it? Paul says, I could speak with the greatest voice that's ever been heard, but if I don't have love for the people that I speak to, I've just become another noisemaker. I've accomplished nothing. He goes on to verse 2. Verse 2. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy... Now, typically in the New Testament, when it speaks of prophecy, it's talking about speaking truth, speaking uh, forth truth into a person's life. It's not talking necessarily about seeing the future. But let's just assume for a moment this is what Paul is saying. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I could, if I could see things that no one else sees, if I know all mysteries, in, in the Greek language when it speaks of mysteries in the New Testament, it speaks about those things that can only be known when God reveals them. Paul says, if I could know all mysteries, in other words, if God just peels back the curtain and reveals to me everything there is for me to see, if I could know all of that and have all knowledge, and if I could even have the kind of faith, get this, he says, if I could have the kind of faith that I could speak to any type of mountain and it be moved, if I had that kind of faith, <laughs> but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I might make the front page of the paper, and you might you know, name a building after me, and there might be people wanting my autograph and clamoring to see who I am, but from God's perspective, if I can do all those things, but I don't have love in my heart, he says, not just that what I've done is useless, he says, I myself am nothing. He goes on to verse 3. Probably by now in the letter, when it's being read in the city of Corinth there in that church, they're all probably perked up listening. He says, and even more, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor something they probably would not have done. And if I surrender my body to be burned, <laughs> I mean, if somehow there's a circumstance where I have to yield my life as a sacrifice and it's going to rescue you, Paul says, if I even gave my body to be burned, but if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. 
It's like buying that car you never drive, building that house you never live in. It's like going to all that expense and all that effort and all that trouble and having nothing to show for it. He says, I could do the greatest deeds ever done in history, and if I do not have love, I am nothing, it is nothing, and it accomplishes nothing. So the question is, so then, so then what is love? If this is a brand new term Paul's using, agape, used only maybe seven times in Greek literature outside the Bible, if it's a brand new concept, then what exactly, what exactly does this unconditional love that we're supposed to have look like? Well, Paul then begins to describe it in chapter 13 beginning in verse 4. Let, let me just say this, that what he's going to do here in these next few verses, he's going to paint a picture. And uh, he's talking about this one topic of love, but he's giving it in all of its variety, uh, all of its hues, all of its nuances. You know, that, that's what he's describing love here as. You, you guys, let, let me ask you, you men something for a second. Have you ever gone shopping for paint colors? You ever had the joy of doing that for you, you guys? Have you ever... You know, some of you are like, you know, I still got the twitch, you know, from going shopping for paint colors. You know, what, whatever happened to blue? That's what I want to know. Whatever, whatever, maybe Charles, you can help me with it. Whatever happened to blue? You know, I just, just give me blue. All I need is blue. You know, now it's like seaside blue and hideaway blue and candy blue and, you know, all these other smell my feet blue. It's just all these different, just give me blue. All I need is blue. There's, there's no more just blue because of all these shades and all these hues and all these nuances. That's what Paul's doing. He's taking love and you just, here's what we do. We just say, just, just tell me about love. You know, we got one word, love. It's just love. That's all it is. It's not that big a deal. Come on, it's just love. I mean, there's been songs about it, country songs, all kinds of songs, books about it, all kinds of stuff. Everybody knows what love is. Come on, let's move on to the next thing. God says, no, no, no. It's not just love. There are shades and there are hues and there are aspects of it that you do not even come close to understanding yet, he says to us. And I'm going to give you a person. His name is Paul. He's the greatest missionary that ever walked this earth. By the way, not a bad writer. I gave him every word to write. And when he puts together this book called 1 Corinthians and he gets to this chapter that we call chapter 13, God says, I'm going to show you just a portion of all of the different aspects and nuances of what love looks like. It's not just love. And so let me give you some of the qualities. And he begins here in verse 4, helping us to understand what some of those qualities look like. He says, beginning verse 4, he says, love is patient. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> oh, boy. That he puts as the very first quality of love, <laughs> that of patience. That love is, love is patience. I mean, it's patience. Some of us are implicated right off the bat, you know, right there. I mean, love is patient. How many of you are real patient people? All right, let me see your hands. You are really nervous about raising your hands. Some of you are. All right. Some of you are. I mean, that's just the way you're wired. God has, and, and you raise your hand with authenticity. I mean, you're, you're wired that way. God has really worked that quality into your life. Did you understand that that quality of patience is a demonstration of love? Did you understand that? Whenever Paul talks about patience specifically, what, what he's talking about, it, what it literally means is long-tempered. In other words, it, it takes a lot to push you over the edge. When you demonstrate patience in your relationships, whether marriage, whether your, your friendships, whether your family relationships with your kids or with your parents, when you demonstrate patience, you are demonstrating love. They are not two separate standalone qualities and virtues. Patience is a reflection of love. They all come back to love. That's one of the, one of the, one of the aspects of love is that, that quality of patience. And, and for some, you, know, you were 
you're not prone to patience. (laughs) You know, you've never prayed for patience because you know what's going to happen when you do. God's going to put you in, you know, kind of in the mixer and he's going to begin to mix it into your life. You've been scared to death because you're not a patient person. Just understand this. When you demonstrate, when I demonstrate something less than patience, we're demonstrating something less than love. Because God says love, by definition, is, first of all, patient. Second, he says love is kind. Love is kind. You know, let me speak for myself for a second. I don't know if I'm speaking for you or not. I'll just, I'll, I'll speak for me. Why is it, and isn't it so ironic, that sometimes the relationships that mean the most to us are the ones when sometimes we, so, we demonstrate something so much less than just simple kindness? You know, there are times for me that I'm so unkind to my wife, to Susie. She's not in here. Don't dare tell her I said this. <laughs> so she doesn't know. She's in preschool. She's in first service. But there are times when I, you know, I had to, you know, just have to check myself. It's like, you know, why did I say that that way? Why did I do that to her? Have you ever been in the midst of a, you know, say uh, with, a, with a friendship or, or with your spouse or with a family member, and you're just going at it, you know, you're just, you know, and then the phone rings. You ever had that happen? That's an awkward time, isn't it? Because, you know, all right, they're listening to how I'm going to answer this phone, and if I say, hello, <laughs> they're going to say, why don't you talk to me that way, you know? I mean, I just talk to me. I'm sure that doesn't ever happen to you guys. But love is, love is kind. And, and I think there is some, some irony to it that sometimes the people we treat most unkindly are the people that, that we don't want to go anywhere. I mean, we, we would die on the inside if they were to be gone, and yet we don't always demonstrate kindness. Kindness is a, it, it's an aspect, it's another, it's another perspective of love. When you treat people unkindly, you're treating them unlovingly. It was happening, it was rampant in the Corinthian church. It's rampant today, even in churches like ours. He says, love is patient, love is kind. He says, love is not jealous. Love does not brag, love is not arrogant. You know, those two, in a sense, go together. You may be thinking, well, he's kind of saying the same thing. It, it, it brags, it doesn't brag, it's not arrogant. Arrogance is kind of the inner quality. Bragging is the outward manifestation of it. If someone's prideful, arrogant on the inside, the way that's going to be demonstrated is they're going to be telling you about all that they've done and all that they are. You know, love doesn't do that. Love doesn't promote itself. Love doesn't rush to the front. Love, love doesn't say, here I am. Love doesn't do that. Love is not self-centered at all. Love is other-centered. Love is ultimately Christ-centered. But love doesn't brag. Love is not arrogant. Th- that may not have a, a huge implication in your marriage, perhaps. You know, I, I don't, I, mean, I doubt a whole lot of husbands and wives sit around bragging about what they, do, what they did as though the other's going to be impressed. We do that in a lot of our other relationships, though. We try to impress others, and we try to put ourselves out front, you know, to people in our other relationships. And that's just, it's not what love looks like. Verse 5, Paul continues. He says, love does not act un- unbecomingly. What does that mean? In different translations say different things. What that literally means is love does not act in a way that causes shame to another. Have you ever heard a husband that will put down his wife in his circle of friends just to get a good laugh? Love doesn't do that. Some of you are still trying to unpack the hurt and the damage that was done 
maybe by a parent or by someone else from years ago who said they loved you, but you're still trying to get out from under the shame that they caused to your name. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love takes a second, takes a, a back seat, even at, at expense. You look at what Jesus did on the cross. He had every right to, to, to stop everything that took place as the events of the cross unfolded. He had every right to do that, and he knew it. But what he did was he placed his desires second place in order to fulfill the will of God the Father so that his great love for you and me and every other person who's ever lived in history could be ultimately fulfilled, right? If he said, no, I don't deserve this. No, I'm going to be first. I'm not going to experience the details of the cross. I'm not going to die for anyone else. If, if, he, if he said, I'm, not, I'm going to seek my own. I don't desire this. Then we're all up a creek without a paddle. We have no means of salvation. But because our Savior, Jesus, chose to put us before himself and because he took a step back so that ultimately our best could be accomplished through his death we have an op opportunity to know God and go to heaven love that reflects him does not seek its own it puts another first love is not provoked it's an interesting picture there um, I liken that to a coiled spring, you know. You got a coiled spring, just the wrong touch in the wrong place will just send it off. Loaded cannon. You ever met somebody that's just a loaded cannon? They're a coiled spring. It's like walking on eggshells. You say the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing. You just add a line a little bit and they go off all over you. You ever have, have that happen? Some of you may be married to someone like that. You may have been raised by someone like that. Some of you may have friends that are like that. You know, you know, four seconds into the conversation, when to hang up and say, hey, we'll talk again later. You know, love doesn't do, love, it just doesn't do that. Love is not, it's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Greek word is the Greek word logizomai. It was a bookkeeping term. It meant to keep a, basically a running book of, of, uh, of totals, of numbers, money that was owed. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It literally means love does not keep books on wrong. It does not keep a book. It does not keep a running tally when someone has wronged you. You know, we all have that little, that, that, that ledger in the back of our minds, don't we? You hear the phrase, uh, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. That's unbiblical. It doesn't mean we get amnesia. I mean, we'll always remember when people have hurt, uh, hurt us. We don't somehow forget, you know, amnesia-like, you know, forget what someone did to us. It means that we don't hold that against them. We release them. We cut them free from the debt that, that, that we could hold against them by their wrongfulness towards us. When it says love does not take into account a wrong suffered, it means it does not keep books on evil. It does not keep this running total in the back of our minds of what someone did to us and hold it against them. Love, unconditional love, the love of God, love that does not uh, uh, ultimately uh, wait to be initiated, it initiates. Love that does not uh, uh, wait for someone else to, to do for us before we do for them. No, love that's unconditional, no strings attached, does not keep that running total. And let me just say, in, in marriages specifically, again, this is a marriage message, but in marriage specifically, man, I'm telling you, it is very, very easy not to go hysterical, but to go historical. It is very, very easy, not as though it's not easy in the other relationships of our lives as well. But especially, there, are a, there is a huge tendency for we as husbands and for wives to just keep that running record 
And man, it, it is like poison. It ultimately seeps into every aspect of that relationship and will kill it from the inside out. Unforgiveness. Love does not keep that record of wrongs. Love cuts loose and allows the debt to be, to, 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 to be, uh, to be removed. It doesn't hold it against them. Love does not keep account of a wrong suffered. Next verse, Paul continues, and he says it does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, the rest of verse 8 through verse 12, we're going to cover next week. We're going to roll that into chapter 14, but let's look at the last verse of this chapter, verse 13. It says, now faith, hope, and love abide these three. That's a pretty good trinity of virtues, (laughs) faith, hope, and love. You got those three, you're doing pretty well. Faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these, he says, is love. In other words, this is the Brooks translation. If you got these three, you only get to pick one. Do you want great faith? Do you want tremendous hope? Do you want love? Take love every time. Paul says, here's the three. The greatest is love. Whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your friendships, whether it's in your relationships with your children, whether it's in your relationships with people at work, regardless, love is the, is the strongest, love is the most important. Chapter 14, verse 1, by the way, says pursue love. Why is that? Because love is the glue, love is the fuel, love is the bullseye of every single relationship. So how do I do it? Thanks a lot, Brooks. This has been real helpful. So how do I do this now? What, do I go to GNC, get the magic you know, bean? You know, I take that, and I'm going to suddenly be able to love people. I mean, how do I do this? Do I take a class after eight weeks? I'm going to know how to love. I mean, how do I do this? There is no formula. Let me just say this. As much as you'd love to have one, there's no formula. I can't give you three easy steps. Let me just, let me just boil it down to what I think has been most helpful for me and most helpful for others, and, and, and it's simply this. How do I learn to love? You draw as close as you can to the one who is defined as love, and that's God. And as you pursue, and as you draw in close, and as you press in close to the heart of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, here's what you're going to find, that there are times when you were very, very unlovable, and he loves you anyway. And you're going to begin to learn that there's nothing that you've ever done that causes him to love you any less, and there's nothing that you can ever do in the future that will make him love you any more that his love for you is absolute, it is complete, it is unconditional, there are no strings attached, and the closer you press in to the heart of God like that, the more you're going to be convinced of his great love for you, and the easier it will be to replicate that kind of love in the relationships across the board of your life. But for the person who has a very difficult time forgiving and letting go and, exper- and extending love, and they're always impatient, they're always holding grudges, and they're always you know, just uh, pr- easily provoked, and all the, all the negatives of what we just read, the person who's there has never been fully convinced of the wonderful amazing awesome love that god has for them and the closer we press into his heart of love for us the easier it will be to ultimately reflect that love to those around us whether it's in our marriages whether it's in our family relationships in our friendships even with our enemies it will apply why because love is the glue love is the fuel And love is the bullseye of every single relationship. So let me just give you a little little test. A little test as we close. Going back through those two and a half verses that describe what love is and what love is not. We're going to bring them up on the overhead. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to read back through there because all of us have a long way to go with this. 
but I want you to read back through these qualities, and I want you just to pick the one that you would say is the least evident in your life right now, the one that is least demonstrated as a quality of love. You, know, you can apply it to your marriage, to your whatever you want to apply it to, but in your life, which of these aspects of love is the least evident in your life right now? Would it be that it's patient? Would it be kindness? Not jealous? Does not brag? Is not arrogant? Does not act unbecomingly? Does not seek its own? Is not provoked? Does not take into account a wrong suffered? Doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness? Rejoices with the truth. Which would you say is the least evident in your life? And then I would say, just as a follow-up to that, in which area of your life would you say, are you feeling the cost of that? You may say, you know what, Brooks, it's kindness. Man, this nails me right between the eyes. I am so unkind. Well, that's great that you see that. Which relationship do you feel like has suffered the most because of your lack of kindness? I think you already know. So which quality is the least evident? Which relationship in your life has suffered the most because of it? And are you willing to pursue that demonstration of love on your knees, saying, God, oh, please, would you develop this quality in my life so that I might see the blessing of unity, the glue, so that I might experience the joy of the fuel of your love in my relationships and that I might hit the bullseye of why you've even given me this relationship to begin with for the purpose, the aim, the goal, the bullseye of love that reflects your great love for us. And by the way, let me say, you'll never do it. You'll never do it unless you already first have a relationship with Jesus who defines himself as love. That while we were yet sinners, he demonstrated it by dying for us on the cross. And it was because of that love that he did all that he did so that all who believe in, trust in, surrender to him can ultimately have forgiveness and everlasting life. Let's pray. God, the world is so, uh, well, so scattered, so off base when it comes to understanding what love really is. And yet your word, man, is like a surgeon's knife. It just cuts through. It cuts through all of the distraction. It cuts through all of the things that that our minds think about when we think of love, and it gets right to the heart of the matter, telling us what love is and what it's not. And yet, Lord, we know when the dust settles that the only way we can show that kind of love is when we first have a relationship with you through Christ. And so, for God, God for some today, that's the first step. It's not to leave here and to try to, to love better, Lord. It's not that at all. For some here today, it's to understand that you've already shown your great love for them. And yet they do not have a relationship with you. Their sin separates them from you. And Lord, it always will for eternity unless they accept your payment for that sin. Lord, the great news is that you chose to come on our behalf. You came in the person of Jesus, God the Son. And he lived a perfect life. And he died as a perfect sacrifice. And he rose again, having paid what was necessary for our forgiveness. And God, the only way we know that we can have a relationship with you is when we lay down that sin. And we choose to invite Jesus to forgive us, to take over. To, we surrender our lives to him. And Lord, there are people here today, you know who they are, who don't know you. They, they've, never, they've never experienced your unconditional love. They've heard all about you, but they don't know you. 
And Lord, I pray that today all that would change as right where they sit, that they choose the best way they know how, the best words they can think of to invite Jesus to come in and to forgive them and to take over. God, for many of us, we've made that decision. You've brought us to that place and we've responded. And yet, Lord, we, we know, it seems, the older we get, how much hard work it really is to truly demonstrate love. Lord, it's not easy being patient. It's not easy always choosing the high road. It's not easy pushing self to second, third, fifth, tenth place so that another can be promoted ahead of us. It doesn't come naturally. And yet, God, at, at the end when we look back, we're going to want to be known as people who loved. Not for what we accomplished or what we acquired, but for how we loved because that is the bullseye. It's why you've instructed us as you have in your word, that we might love you and that we might love others. And so, God, teach us to do that. I pray this week, as we've identified just one area that needs attention, Lord, help us not to be overwhelmed. We all need to work on every part of this list. But, God, help us just to be intentional about that one area, regardless of what it is. And, God, I pray that we would, we would just simply cry out to you to, to enable us, to show us, to, to make us mindful of how we need to be intentional and demonstrating love to those around us. And so, God, we thank you in advance for the work you're going to do, that you don't leave us to ourselves, but that you walk with us. And, Lord, that you help us to apply the things we learn because of your Spirit who gives us strength. And so, Lord, whatever decisions we need to make right now, I pray that we'd make it. Lord, who knows what marriage may be saved just because kindness will be demonstrated. Who knows what relationship may be salvaged between a parent and a child because true, genuine, authentic, unconditional love will be applied here in the near future. Lord, who knows what can be accomplished if we just hear your word and live it, knowing that you're there to do it with us. So bless these important decisions today. We thank you for what you'll do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. As Nathan leads us, this is an opportunity for you to respond. You know, if you need to come and pray down front, you can do that. It's open. You can pray right where you stand. If you have a decision to make and would like someone to walk with you through that decision, we've got folks that'd be glad to do it. But as God leads, as we sing together, won't you come today as we sing?